Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, he may be uh, CEO of a successful company. Uh, He may be an NBA star who is even playing in the finals. He could be a rough and tumble um, carpenter who works with his hands every day, who who, uh, builds buildings he He could be a doctor who has studied many, many years to practice medicine. He could be a professor, an intellectual, a brilliant mind. He could be so many different things, but let a little bundle of joy come screaming into his world. And when that bundle of joy comes screaming into his world, he becomes jello. And you will hear that very accomplished, tough guy or intellectual guy all of a sudden begin to speak a language that he's never spoken before. And he'll look at that little boy or he'll look at that little girl and he will see if he can get her or him to say dada before he says mama. And he will begin to say things that really don't make any sense in normal language. And he doesn't care. He'll do it in public in front of anybody. He will uh, hold that kid up and just do all kinds of crazy things. And everything that he has, his dignity, his pride, his sense of accomplishment, all of that. He instinctively lays aside, why? Because there's a kid, and he wants to communicate with that kid. You might say, he's a fool for that kid. He's become foolish. Look at this man and watch him. Uh, He's become a fool because he's got kids. Here, Paul says that God acted a fool. Oh, Jerry, that that sounds so sacrilegious. I'm just telling you what uh, Stephanie has read to you. 
it uses the word fool or folly multiple times in this text. The foolishness of God. And so, how do we see the foolishness of God? There are two clear realities of where we see the foolishness of God in this passage. And the first is that a crucified Christ is the foolishness of God. Paul says in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. What is the word of the cross? The word of the cross is that the central proposition of the Christian faith is a crucified Jesus hanging on a cross. And the cross in Paul's day in Corinth, which was a Roman city now, was reserved for hardened criminals Uh, for slaves who had run away and refused to submit to their masters or for rebels against the state. The cross was humiliating. And Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Cicero said this, the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. A cross was an embarrassing, humiliating idea and concept and reality, yet Paul talks about the word of the cross. Many of you have been watching the news as Sergeant uh, Bergdahl, I think the way his name is pronounced, who for five years was missing in Afghanistan, was rescued. Typically, we as a nation would celebrate that. We would be so excited, but there's mixed response to it. Why? Because it is unknown as to whether or not Sergeant Bergdahl defected. Did he go away on his own? and be with the Taliban for five years, and if he did, then why would we risk lives and spend money to go rescue him? That is the argument. But what if we do this? What if we take Sergeant Bergdahl, who's now in Texas, having flown in from Germany, what if we take Sergeant Bergdahl and we make him the hero of our country? He's reputed to be a turncoat, but we make him a hero. He's reputed to be an insurrectionist of sort, but we make him a hero. That's who Jesus was. Jesus was crucified for being a turncoat, committing treason, being an insurrectionist. Jesus was crucified under horrible charges. And he became the centerpiece of Christianity, Martin Hengel said, to proclaim a crucified Jew from some backwater of the empire as a divine being sent on earth, God's son, Lord of all, and the coming judge of the world, must have been thought by any educated man to be utter madness and presumptuousness. And yet, this crucified Christ is the centerpiece of the faith. Paul then quotes Isaiah In verse 19, 
He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What is he talking about? The wisdom of the wise in Isaiah chapter 1, I think, which is being quoted here, is that Israel found themselves in trouble. And when they did, their trouble was with Assyria who was invading from the north. And they found themselves in trouble. So they go south to Egypt and say, hey, why don't you partner with us? We'll build an alliance that will be able to destroy or to stand against at least Assyria. It only infuriated the Assyrians more. It angered God, their father, that they would not rely on him, that they would not depend on him to meet their needs. It angered him that they wouldn't do that. And he turned Israel over into the hands of the Assyrians. It didn't work in Israel's day to turn to oneself rather than to God. And it doesn't work today either. Paul says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Those are all three official terms for people who had jobs. They were wise. That was a job in Paul's day, a debater, a scribe. These are official titles. Paul says, where are they? Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The very things of the kingdom that the wise and the understanding didn't get because God was foolishly crazy about us. Now look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That's a confusing phrase. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. What does that mean? Uh, What it means is that God in his plan decided that the way to know him would not be through worldly wisdom. God, in his wisdom, decided wisdom wouldn't be the way to know him. Let's say had he decided, the way to know me is the way to know more. So the more you know, the more you know me. If God had made that choice, then who would be closest to him today? Smart people. Wise people. Those who are educated would be the ones closest to God. And so there would be this elite group of people, would there not? the people who could think the best, the people who could articulate their argument the best, the philosophers, the theologians, those people who could up here process better, they would get to know him. But Paul says, who was one of the most brilliant ever, it pleased God not through the wisdom of man that that's how you would get to know him. I remember as a college student, as a grad school student, I had gone to grad school for one purpose, and my desire was to be uh, to work in college. That was my desire. It was my dream. I wanted to do it. And so I'm working on my master's in college administration when God began to deal with me about ministry and deal with me about being a pastor, and I fought it for months and months and months. I even flew up to Ohio, interviewed for a job, got offered the job. It was a good job for my age, and, and then a week later called and said no. But here's how I sealed the deal. I came home to the little church in Old Fort I grew up in. 
It's one of those little churches where you could just stand up at any point in time and testify. It's small enough where you could do that, and that's just kind of how they roll. And so it was at the end of that service that morning, I stood up, and to that little congregation of people that had known me since I was just a little kid, I said to them, God has called me to preach. And I thought, what in the world have you just done? It was at the end of the service, I'm walking down the aisle, when a man approached me. He was, a man, he was a short guy. Some of you may know him. His name is Albert Dale. And Albert is not alive anymore, but Albert lived in this community, and Albert couldn't read, nor could he write. But Albert Dale came up to me, and he looked at me, and he said, Jerry, I said, yes, sir. He said, while you were singing in the choir this morning, God told me you was going to be a preacher. I thought, wow. It's so cool that God was talking to Albert, and Albert's not very learned. I mean, he can't even read the Word of God. Yet, God did not choose to know him through worldly wisdom. I walk on out. I'm standing on the front steps of that little church building when Paul Ray is standing there. Paul lived out in Davistown, North Carolina, just up there out in the country, and he just prayed, and Paul never traveled far. But he was known to be a man of prayer. I stood there. Paul was standing there. Tears began to stream down his face. I said, Paul, what is it? He said, Jerry, I have prayed for this for three years. Wow. Here's a man who hasn't traveled far. Internet wasn't developed then, so he had never been on the internet. He had never been far out of North Carolina. Yet God, through his grace, would visit with Paul in his little white frame house out tucked into a holler in Davistown. And say, Paul, this is what I'm up to. What if it required you to be well-traveled? What if it required a certain intellectual acumen? What if it required that? Paul is saying through the wisdom of God, that wasn't necessary. Rather, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, Paul is referring both to the gospel, the message of the cross, and preaching itself. The reason we know it's the message of the cross is clearly stated. The reason we we know it's the form is that there were four words. There are four words in the New Testament that describe preaching, different words to describe preaching, none of which were considered acceptable rhetorical devices in Paul's day. None of them were. None of those words were considered acceptable rhetorical devices. And God said, you know, I'm so crazy about you. I'm going to get down on the floor, and I'm going to crawl to you, and I'm going to say the goo-goos and the get you to say the dadas and the papas, and I'm going to do that so you will know me, and I will use a foolish, crucified Christ on the cross, and I'll use a foolish method. I teach preaching at Montree as an adjunct professor. This spring I was teaching. And the students, uh, they, they have to preach three sermons, one 10-minute sermon, another 15-minute sermon, and another 20-minute sermon uh, throughout the semester. It was the 20-minute sermon when I decided to send an email out to the entire student body, faculty, staff, and invite them to come hear the kids, students preach. 
And the students weren't one bit happy about that. But I sent the email and said, my students will be preaching on this certain night in the chapel of the prodigal. They would love for you to come hear them preach. And so on that night, there were a few people who showed up. Now, there were six students preaching 20-minute sermons. So you do the math, that's two hours of preaching. And I love college students, but they're not good preachers at that point. All right? They've been through one semester of preaching. I've taught them as much as I can, but they're just not the best preachers. They can be hard to listen to, hard on the ears at this point as preachers. There's a kid who came and he sat there. He listened to all six sermons. Most of the people who came had somebody they were listening to. And when that person finished, they left because we would have a little break between the preachers and they left. But this kid listened to all the sermons and he was a friend of Zach Antiel who was there in my class. It was one of those cold, windy nights on the hill at Montreat. Zach left at 9 o'clock. Class was over at 9. Zach left at 9. And Zach called to talk to me about this or email me the very next day. When he did, he was walking back to his dorm when this kid, Joel, drove up in his pickup truck. And he stopped his pickup truck right in the road and Zach was walking and it was cold and he rolled the window down and when he did, tears were streaming down Joel's face. And Zach said, what is wrong? And Joel said, would you, would you get in the truck? And so Zach got in the truck with Joel. Joel, who'd been sitting there listening to student preachers just scrap to preach what they had uh, chosen to preach that night. He looked at Zach and he said, before I walked into the chapel tonight, I, I knew everything, I guess, about Christ that anybody could know. I've known all these facts, but I've never known Jesus personally. Could you help me? And sitting in that truck on that campus at Montreat, Zach led Joel to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Joel came to Christ listening to a bunch of college kids try to preach. Paul says through the foolishness of preaching the form and also the message, but the Jews aren't satisfied. Jews want what? They want signs. They look at Jesus and say, Jesus, Moses, he parted the Red Sea. What you got? Show us what you can do. We want some more signs. Uh, Joshua, the wall fell down. Um, David, he put a few stones in a sling and slung that thing, and a nine-foot giant fell to his death. Jesus, show us what you got. And God, through a crucified Christ, says to the Jews, here's your Messiah. And he's powerless to save himself. On the cross, it appears. It's foolishness. The Greeks, they say, teach us something new. Uh, we've got Aristotle. We've got Plato. Give us something new. We want to hear some new truth. Give us some nugget of something that we haven't heard before. And Jesus would opt to say, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who weep and mourn, for they shall be comforted. He would opt 
to walk through a town, and rather than engage in the wise, he'd find Zacchaeus hanging out in a tree and call him down and do lunch. The Jews would get tangled up with Jesus hanging on a tree because Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 say, and if a man has committed a crime, this is their law, punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. How could they worship a man? How could they worship a man that their own law said was cursed? God is acting foolish. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When God acts a fool, we stand in awe. When God acts a fool, we stand in awe. His apparent foolishness is mind-blowing. When God makes himself vulnerable, Roman soldiers look at a cross and say, surely this man was the Son of God. A crucified Christ is the foolishness of God. Secondly, called Christians are the foolishness of God. Look at what Paul says. He says, for consider your calling, verse 26. This doesn't refer to your calling to the ministry. It refers to your calling to faith in Christ. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. What does it mean to be wise according to worldly standards? In Corinth, people who were wise were also wealthy, and so they combined their wisdom with their wealth, and they bought them anything they wanted. They bought their way through life. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. They used their money to get power. Perhaps you saw the news story recently about Cantor, the surprising defeat of Cantor, the House Majority Leader in Virginia. Let me give you a few numbers on that. Cantor got 28,902 votes. He was beaten by a guy by the name of David Bratt. I mean, what a horrible name, all right? Your last name is Bratt. Hopefully you don't live up to that, but David Bratt got 36,120 votes. Cantor raised $4.7 million. Bratt raised 207000 Cantor spent $358,000 on air travel alone. Bratt spent 225000 on his campaign alone. Outside groups spent $366,330 supporting Cantor. Outside groups spent $3,900 supporting Bratt. 17 political action committees gave to Cantor's campaign, none to Bratz. Do you know what political pundits say? David Bratt never should have won. Why? He didn't have the money machine. He didn't spend. The, the Cantor campaign spent $1.3 million alone on fundraising. 
They spent $1.3 to raise uh, another $3.4 million. Political wisdom says Brat never should have won. And human wisdom says you and I should never have the privilege to be God's kids. Human wisdom says there's no way that we should be in the family of God. Why? Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. What does that mean? Well, in Corinth, the family you were born into said everything about you. And if you were born not into a family of noble birth, there was no way to work your way into the ranks. There wasn't the Corinthian dream or the Greek dream or the Roman dream as we have the American dream today. If you were born poor, you died poor. If you were born noble, you died noble. And Paul says not many of you were of noble birth. The well-to-do donated large banquets, public buildings, temples, and monuments. They did all of these things because they were wealthy and they could. I went to college to a rather wealthy undergraduate school in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and mostly wealthy people, and there was me. My roommate, my freshman year, his mom was a gynecologist. His dad was a heart surgeon. He had plenty of money. I remember getting his name in the mail, and it said Ashish Gajanan Shambhak. And I saw that name, and I thought, what in the world? And so I carried it across the street to Ruth Baker. She was the only person I knew who had ever gone to college. She was old by this time, but I, crawl, I carried it across the street to Mrs. Baker, and I said, Mrs. Baker, look at my roommate's name. And she looked at that, and she said, well, he's got to be smart. <laughs> and then my sophomore year, in junior year, my roommate from a very wealthy family, he drove a BMW to college, 325i. He forgot to change the, uh, the oil in it, and his dad sent some men down, and they picked it up and replaced it with the 538. Yeah. That's a nice reward, isn't it? Meanwhile, I'm driving my 1979 Plymouth Horizon, four-door, hatchback, gray on gray. Sweet ride. But I decided to head to First Baptist Spartanburg. I'd only gone to little country churches all my life, and I'm in this town. And I decided I'd head over to First Spartanburg worship. And I walked in, and I was blown away. Beautiful building. Still the building they use today. Beautiful building. There were women with large hats on. No lie. The men were decked out in sweet suits. I'm looking around. I I saw in the parking lot two large buses that a member of their church had paid a hundred or two hundred thousand apiece and just donated them so the kids would have something good to ride and camp in. Our kids are going to camp this week and everything we can scramble up, you know. But these sweet—it was amazing. I'll never forget Dr. Walker, the pastor. That Scottish accent. He would preach. And uh, I went there two or three times, and every single time he asked the people not to leave during the invitation. And every single time, 150, 100, 150, 200 people, mass exodus. And I would sit there and think, do you not care? Do you not care? No one spoke. It was that kind of stuffy place. Dr. Walker retired, and Don Wilton came to First Spartanburg to be the pastor. 
Wilton came from a different background, and there was a diner down the way from First Spartanburg. First Spartanburg sat among some pretty rough neighborhoods, and there was a diner, and the guy who owned it was outspoken against Christ. Don Wilton didn't care. Wilton headed down to that diner, met that guy, and led him to Christ. And guess who's showing up at First Spartanburg? Oh, the rough owner of the diner. <clears throat> and Wilton began to preach and said, guess what? We've got all of these African-American kids who live right around us, and they've got to hear the gospel. So we're going after them. And in the first six months at that church, 600 people left. 600. Why? They didn't want those kids running through their halls. Don Wilton said he was in his office one day. It was a little past six months in. He had gotten another letter. Another family was gone. And he said, I just dropped my head on the desk thinking, God, what have I done? And why did you bring me here? When one of the deacons of the church walked in, and the deacon said, what's going on? And Don said, it's another family. They're leaving too. What have I done? Don said that deacon looked at me and said, get your head up. God is pruning us. He's cutting away everything that needs to be cut away for us to go out and reach these kids in these neighborhoods all around us. Let him do his work. And we'll go forward and do his work. And if you go to First Baptist Spartanburg today, you'll see a place called the Hangar that they built, it will seat 900 teenagers for a midweek service where they fill it up with teenagers from all around downtown Spartanburg. You will walk into an amazing preschool facility that they built so that they could bring in those kids. And God has just blessed and blessed and blessed. It seemed foolish it seems crazy to do that. It seems crazy to risk all your property and risk your reputation and risk all that you build up to tarnish yourself with outsiders, doesn't it? But God's crazy like that. As a matter of fact, he's crazy about you. If you could only see how much he loves you, so much so that he went to great lengths to send his only son Look at this. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. This is not a treatise on predestination or Calvinism or nothing like that. I don't even want you to go there in your mind. I want you to take those two words God chose and let those sink in for a moment. If you belong to Christ, Scripture is clear, however you process this, that God chose you. Why? Why would he pick me? Me? Like, I know myself. Why would God choose? God chose 
what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It was mowing my grass on Friday. Many of you know I love to mow. I have a push mower, and I still love to mow. I push mow my grass, I put on some headphones, and I listen to a sermon. I love it. I love seeing the lines. I'm borderline OCD. Some would argue with the borderline part of that. I love to see the lines. I love to see the straight lines. I love to mow. It's therapeutic for me. I'm mowing the front yard. I'm about four lines in, going vertical this time, not horizontal. I switch it up every other week. And so I'm going vertical this time. I'm about four lines in when I look up and coming down the sidewalk is this guy. He's got a big old dog. He's got a backpack on him that goes from here to here. And he's really tan. I nod. He nods. And then he starts to talk. And I'm thinking, can you not see? There's a loud mower. I've got headphones on. I can't hear a word you're saying. Obviously, he doesn't care because he continues to talk. So I think, oh. I mean, I know. I'm just being honest. I think. I'm listening to a sermon. I don't have time for people. All right, so horrible, but at any rate, that's what's going through my mind. So I take the headphones off. I pause the sermon on my iPhone, and uh, he looks at me, and he says, Sir, if you would sell me one, I would pay you $2 right now for a good beer. (laughs) I said, I just drank my last one, dude. I am... uh, I don't have one left. I didn't say that at all. I I said, listen, I don't have a beer, man. I I don't have a beer. He said, I just tried to buy one at Samir's. I said, sir, uh, you know, you can't buy a beer at, uh, you can buy them some places, but not at, you know, not uh, at at stores here. He said, well, he said, if I don't have one, I'm going to go into seizures. He said, it's bad. But, but I'll go into DTs, and i got to have a beer. He said, if you could just drive me to Swananona. Well, I've heard Swananona called a lot of things, but Swananona isn't one of them. And uh, I don't know what was in me. I was compelled to correct him. I said, sir, that's Swananona. I mean, the guy's drunk. What what am I doing? But at any rate, so I I said, um, he said, I'll mow your grass for you. If you will drive me to Swananona. I said, sir, if why? I don't know. I, I said, sir, you don't understand. I love mowing. Like, I don't know why I felt compelled to tell him that, but I said, I love to mow. I, I don't want you to mow my grass. I mean, could you imagine a drunk guy in straight lines? <laughs> Whew. And so then I said, I'm just giving you guys everything I got here. All right, so... I said, listen, I'll take you to Swananoa, but I said, I hate putting your dog in my Jeep. (laughs) It's the truth, you know, and I said, but we'll do it. And and so I go, and he said, well, I'll just push your lawnmower out of the way at least. And so we're walking down the driveway, and he pushes my lawnmower over, and I go to open the back of the Jeep and and, uh, throw the seats down, and he throws his bag down, and a big old knife falls out. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I want to die today. And, uh, and so he said, that's my knife. If you need to hold it, he picks it up and hands it to me. If you want to carry it, 
That's fine with me. You can hold my knife. I'm like, it's all right, sir. Just throw it in the back, you know, with the dog. Just throw it back here. Put the seat down. We throw it in the dog, back there with the dog. And by that time, we're on first name basis. His name's Kenny. and We're heading up the mountain. What Kenny doesn't know is that on Thursday, I was driving. My mom had uh, surgery Thursday in Charlotte. And I was driving early, 4.30, 4.45 Thursday morning. And I put in a sermon. I turned on a sermon. And when I did, God wrecked my world in every good way possible, wrecked my world. And as I was listening to that sermon, driving in to be with mom and and dad and my sister uh, with mom's surgery, God began to do something in me that was totally unexpected. And I was in Spartanburg to about six, or in Charlotte to about 6.30 or 7, and I'm driving back, and I put the sermon back in, and and I listen again, and when I do, I'm crying so hard I can barely see the road. And the sermon was all about, a matter of fact, what caught my attention was the preacher, who was a guest preacher at this podcast I listened to, he, he said, why don't we pray? And he called God Papa. And when he did, I swiped it back. I thought, what, what did you just call him? And I listened again, and the whole sermon was about the limitless mercy of God in adopting us as his sons and daughters so that we can call him Papa. And I've just never been there. I love him, but I've never been to the place to where I think that God is crawling around on the floor with me saying, and getting me to say, Papa. And the thought of that, the guy finished the sermon and he said, why don't you just write a letter to your Papa God and thank him for adopting you. And I thought I would just tell him immediately. And I got one word out of my mouth and the tears flowed. And the word was Papa. I was like a six-month-old learning to chatter, and I couldn't say anything else but Papa, and I wept. And when Kenny got in my Jeep, I looked over at him and I thought, Papa, you never intended him to need beer that much. He's 40. He looks 55. Back when you made all this, it was never your design. And we head up the road, and I looked over, and I said, Kenny, I'm a pastor. He said, God Almighty. (laughs) And I said, Kenny, Kenny, could I tell you what Jesus has done for me? You see, I was lost, and like you, had all kinds of problems. But one day, when I was only 15, out of the blue, he asked me to be his boy. Kenny, he wants to be your papa. 
Like, he doesn't want you to live like this. Do you understand? And he would make excuse after excuse after excuse. And finally, we got near the exit. And he said, this is Swan Anona, slow learner. This is Swan Anona, where I want to be. So we pulled off the exit. And he said, take me to that shell station. I can buy a beer there. We pull in. There's a sheriff's deputy, for which I'm grateful. There's a knife. I unload him. He gives me this compliment that no one's ever given me. I'm going to say, he said, you are one cool mother. Mm-hmm. I've been called that before, but never in a complimentary way. And so, and then he just hugged me one big nasty hug. He just hugged me. I got back in my Jeep. I'm driving down the road. And all I can think is, Papa, that was never your plan. Never in a million years did you want him to turn out like that. Paul is trying to get that point across. Here's what he says. And because of him who, God, verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? Is that if Kenny would only trust Jesus instead of the bottle. From the moment he put his trust in Christ, alcoholic that he is, from that moment on, every time God looked at him, who would God see? He'd see Jesus. See, it doesn't matter what Kenny's ever done in his life. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God wants to be, through Jesus, Kenny's righteousness. He wants to make him right. He wants to be a sanctification. He wants to heal him from his dependence on alcohol. And he's redeemed him. He has paid the price through his blood on the cross so that all that Kenny has to do is trust Christ. And in that moment, God in his foolishness says, I want you to be my boy. In that moment, God in his foolishness says that no matter what you've done, no matter the sins you've committed, no matter the pain and the heartache that you've caused, I love you, I love you, I love you. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know what that means? That if Kenny... Trades the bottle for the body and blood of Christ. That he'll boast in the Lord. That the most moral good guy who comes to Christ will also brag on who? The Lord. Would you bow your heads? We are going to sing and boast in the Lord in just a moment. But there are some of you who sit here this morning and you do not know Christ. No, you don't. You sit on the sidelines looking in. Like Kenny, you're lost and maybe you've never done what he's done or been where he's been. 
but you are on the outside looking in, lost without Christ. Say, Jerry, what do I do? A prayer like this, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, lost without you. Please forgive me of my sins. Today I trust you. Want to make God my papa, my daddy.